Hi, everyone. Welcome to Farsight's Intelligent Corporation Group uh, to a special podcast episode, uh, which is part of our Shielded Dialogues podcast uh, sponsored by the Zcash Foundation. And we have uh, um, uh, Zuko Wilcox here. So we're very, very, very excited to speak uh, with Zuko today. We already had a really great kickoff of this series uh, with Andrew Miller, uh, who joined us for our first uh, of these calls. Um, and so again, uh, as the Intelligent Corporation Group, uh, you guys are sitting in on the podcast production uh, and later this will be turned into a podcast that will then be uh, published. So I'm really happy to have Zuko here. Uh, Zuko, you're a computer security specialist, a self-proclaimed cypherpunk, the CEO of the electric coin company, um, which is a for-profit company for the development of Zcash. So thanks a lot for joining. Really, really happy to have you on board. Uh, this entire podcast series, actually, um, which is uh, sponsored by the Zcash Foundation and produced with the help of the Smart Contract Research Institute. So th thank you, um, uh, guys, for this. Um, and the entire podcast series arose partly out of discussions that we had uh, in this group with many of you, in fact, in the last year uh, on uh, the importance and on a few technica technicalities around privacy preserving transactions or shielded transactions, I think, as you prefer to call them, Zuko. Um, and so the idea in this series is that we really interview a few top cryptography researchers, but also privacy activists, regulators, and maybe DeFi entrepreneurs, consumers, uh, and human rights activists and so forth on if and how um, as shielded transactions uh, could be a part of our lives, uh, what we risk by giving them up, but also any risk that could come from them and how we could um, uh, prevent those that may arise. So perhaps as a goal, uh, to bring us up to speed a little bit, um, how long have you been in the space for now? You think like in the in the space? Yeah, in the let's say let's say cryptography, computer security space. Let's start there. It was it was when I was on the internet before the World Wide Web, and there was an FTP site, and there were PS or PDF documents uh, that had some science papers by David John. But this is probably 1993. Um, so I printed them out and skipped class and sat under a tree and read them. And uh, I guess that's when I got crypto pilled. Crypto pilled. Okay. And By then, the way, this is a great group. I was just scrolling through the, the little Zoom uh, list of all the people. Hi, folks. You guys are awesome. This is fun. Yeah. Well, uh, and again, again, to everyone here who's a participant, i.e., most of you would be much more, um, I think, skilled at doing the interview than me. So whenever you have questions, just put them in the chat and we'll get to you. Uh, I'll do the, uh, the, the, the softball questions and then you guys can, uh, can chime in. So this is a collaborative podcast interview. <laughs> um, so, but I mean, just because you mentioned him, you were also involved in DigiCash, right? Do you want to say a few words about that? That was really one of the, the earlier cryptocurrencies around, right? So I, read these science papers by David Chom, who invented some core concepts in cryptography, as well as the concept of privacy preserving money, as well as the concept of privacy preserving network, both of the concepts of privacy preserving networking, which is uh, mixed nets and dining cryptographers nets. And then I just thought that was the greatest thing ever. So it's because I had, whatever happens during your formative years seems really important. Well, my, one of the things that happened during my formative years was I woke up and saw on the dead tree newspaper headline that the Berlin Wall had suddenly fallen. Um, and so I felt like, oh, it's a whole new world. Like national orders are no longer jail cell walls. Then I discovered the internet. That was awesome. 
And I felt like it's a whole new world. Like national borders are no longer control points, choke points for communication. Then I read this, these papers by David Charm and I was like, aha, now national border borders will no longer be control choke points for cooperation. So I thought it was the most, I was like the third piece, the third leg of the stool that we needed. This was 1993 uh, or so. Uh, And then it, didn't happen. And I, I did go to work for Digican for David Charm in Amsterdam. I dropped out of college. It was uh, the best move ever. I learned a lot more um, by working for him with all those brilliant cryptographers that worked there. Uh, but Digicash didn't work. I would say the number one reason is that it was centralized. It was a it was a cryptocurrency in the sense that the operators couldn't monitor all the users transactions but it required a centralized server to be continuously available and i don't think that was good enough for people and so it never took off there could be other reasons it's always hard to ascribe reasons for things that was the end of that what's your next question yeah like you've got well i mean you know so you've really been uh, in the space for quite some time um and so yeah. how do you see the entire space and with space it's kind of like difficult to see what i mean perhaps but like the cryptography computer security and then what yeah. that get into like i mean you remember the financial cryptography conferences right i mean they're still yeah they're having one in may that's where i met marcus miller i think it was 98 or maybe 99 financial cryptography conference met marcus miller that changed my life hi hi markham i see you over there uh, yeah, or, could, you, could you elaborate a little bit? Like, how did you see the space evolve since then? I mean, the financial cryptography conferences, you know, were really quite, I think, cryptography focused. And yeah, what, there, what was an era, there was an era of optimism and creativity, which was like the 90s, like the Web 1.0 boom. Uh, and then there was a long dry spell of pessimism and resignation where the CEO of Sun Microsystems, Scott McNeely, said, privacy is dead, get over it. And everybody was either making money or failing to make money. And that's all anyone talked about. And the, what changed that was Bitcoin. Now, I, I never gave up. I spent like 12 years after I left DigiCash. Even while I was at DigiCash, I would occasionally pass by David Chom in the hallway. And he'd be like, oh, David, I've got a new idea for how to make it decentralized. But he would listen for like 90 seconds and then tell me why my idea would never work. Oh, yeah, you're right. So I, I worked, I tried and tried for like 12 years to figure out how to have a decentralized currency. And I couldn't figure it out. And then Bitcoin came along. And uh, I was the first person to write a blog post about Bitcoin. <laughs> and uh, uh, the initial Bitcoin homepage linked to Nick Chabo's page, Wade Eye's page, and my page is our, is its three links to other homepages. I will retweet the article that uh, you wrote. I'm dying to see that. Okay. Yes. Didn't want to interrupt. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The, the article says we tried and failed to make a currency that could be widely acceptable, which is, of course, necessary for a currency to do its job. And it's going to have to be decentralized for a large swath of people to be willing to rely on it. And then it says, Oh, and check out this new Bitcoin thing by this guy named Satoshi Nakamoto. It's another attempt to make a decentralized currency. That's all it says. Yeah, that was that was Bitcoin's Hello World uh, blog post. I mean, that was the that was the Welcome to the World Bitcoin blog post. So, 
Bitcoin changed everything because, of, well, technologically, because it was decentralized and so people could rely on it. And that there's this concept from Nick Java of social scalability, like how many people with how little information are willing to all rely on the same thing as each other and have shared expectations that tend to be met. Um, so that's a really great concept, social scalability. So Bitcoin had that where nothing else previously did. And culturally, it changed, it, it empowered people. Like instead of saying, oh, privacy is dead. And the other narrative I kept hearing during that time was like kids these days don't care about privacy. Uh, that's like an old generation. That's the last generation who cared about that. Now it's over. Um, and Bitcoin changed that by making people feel empowered. They can do a thing. They can exercise their values, and they're with other people who exercise those values. So it was a community. But now this that's led to everything else ever since. Yeah, but now there's you know obviously a difference between I mean probably more than one difference between Bitcoin and Zcash, and um, in the sense that uh, Zcash is really based on strong privacy. So could you perhaps speak a little bit to that difference and uh, what made you really uh, be into that uh, direction? Sure, I'm going to look up a quote from Satoshi that I posted yesterday. Because I was reminded of how in about 2010 or 2009, Satoshi and some others were talking about the privacy problems in Bitcoin. So it was clear culturally. So I don't know anything about Satoshi's identity. Just like it's polite to use people's preferred pronouns, it's polite to use their preferred identity. So I'm just going to call him him and I'm going to call him Satoshi. Um, and also, I don't have any private information anyway. But um, it was clear. So I don't know anything about any other identities Satoshi might have had, but it was clear culturally that Satoshi was a cypherpunk, right? Because his goals were political and his means were technological. And um, I was looking up today, 2010, oh wait, August 2010, I can send you this if you want. Satoshi posted about the privacy problem in Bitcoin. Like the whole motivating reason for Bitcoin as far as my perception and I, I could be biased, but I'm pretty sure like 100% of the other people involved for the first 10 years were exactly on the same page as this, which is that you need independence from central banks manipulating the money supply, and you need independence from all the like cops and advertisers and monopolies and armies and everyone who wants to control everyone else. Uh, and that means a money supply that is not uh, subject to some centralized discretionary control and it means privacy that's just that was the whole plan <laughs> um but it was clear to me from the get-go that bitcoin completely failed at part two at a technological level and i kind of think it was clear to satoshi too because they were talking with hal finney and others um back in 2010 and satoshi wrote this is a very interesting topic if a solution oh the topic is could we use zero knowledge proofs to fix Bitcoin's privacy problem? That was a question. Now, the answer was no, because in 2010, zero-knowledge proofs were not sufficiently uh, well-developed. But by like 2016, they were, uh, which is the origin of Zcash. But anyway, in 2010, Satoshi said, this is a very interesting topic. If a solution was found, a much better, easier, more convenient implementation of Bitcoin would be possible. Where was I going? What was the question? And then um, fast forward uh, then six years, um, zero knowledge proofs were further along and Zcash. So zero knowledge proofs had some breakthroughs in 2013, I think. 
and then more like building, you know, breakthroughs, building on breakthroughs in terms of efficiency. Uh, zero dollars proofs were discovered in the 1980s and it was one of those sort of ivory tower things where we've proven it's possible, but no one's ever going to bother renting a supercomputer to do one. Uh, and then in 2013, there was a new generation of zero knowledge proof research that came out, I think 2014, 2015 or so successive, you know, when you get those breakthroughs, then all the other scientists get interested in something, you get a, a nice little cascade of breakthroughs. And so I saw a presentation by some researchers, which included uh, Matt Green from Johns Hopkins and a bunch of like theoretical zero knowledge proof scientists put together. There were seven co-authors. And what it said is, ooh, we can, it was just basically the fulfillment of Satoshi's 2010 forum post, right? Where if we could use your knowledge proofs for this, a better version of Bitcoin would be possible. It just said, oh, we can use your knowledge proofs. Now we can encrypt the messages. Because obviously, I assume everyone here is really technically well-informed. So obviously, the problem is that in Bitcoin, you don't want to have a centralized thing that everyone relies on, which could lie to you or could go down and you lose access to the service. So what's the solution? You broadcast all that information to everyone so that you can, everyone can keep everyone else on this. Nobody can lie and you can always connect to any one of those people. So you always have access to the service. Uh, and then the cost is now everyone has complete visibility to everyone else's functionality, everyone's choices, behavior. And the thing that Satoshi was talking about in 2010 was to think that so scientists solved in uh, 2014, I think, or 2015, which was, okay, we're going to encrypt the transactions. Like, I have this many Bitcoins, I'm going to send that many to you. In uh, Bitcoin, everyone can confirm that you actually did have them originally and you didn't also give them to someone else. And then the, the breakthrough, which the cryptographers who admitted it called it zero cash, and then later, when we were turning it into a commercial product, we decided zero wasn't a very good branding for money. <laughs> so we renamed it to Zcash. We shortened it. Um, but the zero cash scientific design just basically says, okay, now we can encrypt this transaction. So only the sender and the receiver know how much is moving and when and who to from whom and to whom and all that. And then we include a zero knowledge proof that whatever is inside this encrypted transaction, it satisfies all of the integrity constraints. And those are, the sender originally had the money, the sender hasn't sent the money to anyone else, it doesn't create any money out of thin air. Um, and it gives the receiver's secret keys the ability to control the money, right? And so there's a zero-knowledge proof of the encrypted transaction does all that right. And that was the zero-cash design by these cryptographer, cryptographers. And then... One of them, Matt Green, uh, had previously seen some of my previous work on an encrypted distributed file system, which is mostly architected along the object capability access control theory for Marcus Miller. Um, the cryptographic object capability access control theory, not the reference checked by a kernel access control theory, because it's just bits in, in that system. But anyway, so Matt Green knew my work in that. So... He, he, caught, he called, we had a phone call and he said, we, we want this whole zero cash thing. Oh, there's that step I missed. Those guys, those cryptographers presented the zero cash design, actually technically 
the previous generation, which they called Zero Coin, which was one year earlier uh, uh, zero knowledge proof technology. And that was in 2013. In 2013, they had this early version of it, which they called Zero Coin. They presented it at the 2013 Bitcoin conference, which was the first big Bitcoin conference. It was so exciting. Uh, that community of people who felt empowered and like their values of freedom and flourishing were recognized by their peers. And it was really exciting. And that was the first big conference, 2013. And there were these cryptographers, Matt Green and Ian Myers, uh, Christina Garman, and they presented their design for how encrypted transactions of Bitcoin. And they presented it as here's an upgrade we could do to Bitcoin. And there was a lot of buzz in the audience. Like everyone, like I say, 100% of the people at that conference were all about privacy as a way to empower people to make their own individual consensual decisions without having to have forgiveness or permission from some powerful overseer. Um, and so there's a lot of buzz. And then at a subsequent presentation at the 2013 San Jose Bitcoin conference, some of the Bitcoin core devs who were the ma maintainers of the code base, right? Satoshi was already out of the picture. And these were the ones who were doing the open source maintenance um, as his successors. And they said, okay, everybody, we hear there's lots of buzz about this zero coin thing, but let's just be real clear. There's no way we're going to upgrade Bitcoin by adding in this crazy new expensive experimental thing into bitcoin because bitcoin is way too important and we're going to be way more conservative than that so if you love this then you better go implement it in an altcoin first and then we'll consider it that was 2013 um and so that was one of the moments of the origin of zcash so then matt green called me and, and to be clear these other scientists had already come up with all the fundamental concepts and breakthroughs in terms of how to do zero knowledge proofs efficiently how to use zero knowledge proofs to protect transactions in a public open ledger. Uh, and so they just called me for like the, the last mile of like productionizing it, making it industrial strength and getting a bunch of users to use it and all that. And um, it's interesting. The first time when I had that conversation with Matt Green, I said no, because I thought to myself, Bitcoin's already got a head start. This is like 2015, probably when we're having this conversation. Bitcoin's already got a head start. If you have something that's sort of like a privacy specialist project, it'll only be used by a few like paranoids or someone who has someone specifically attacking them right now. So they think they need it, but everyone will use the mainstream thing and therefore it won't really help society. Like if it's a niche thing that few people use, then our whole society will still keep sliding into centralized control over everyone's decisions. So it's not worth it. I, I don't want to, invest the rest of my life into trying that if it's going to be the niche thing. And then it was literally the next day after I'd slept on it um, that I thought, you know what? Wait a minute. Everyone needs privacy for all their normal stuff, like payroll, <laughs> contracts, you know, paying your taxes, buying stuff at the store. Everything that everyone does is eventually going to get attacked and exploited until it goes private. So therefore, Zcash could be the mainstream thing that everyone uses for 99% of all the things. Excuse me, Zuko. You, you've made yeah. that argument really convincingly. I just wanted to get a quick question in on some of the history. Were any of those uh, uh, crypto researchers who were bringing this new 
um, uh, zero knowledge proof stuff to you? Were they ex cypherpunks or did they come out of some other environment? Well, I mean, none of them were on the cypherpunks mailing list, as far as I know. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't want to characterize their nature. I think of them as sort of they've already made their mark in the history books by doing this, as well as most of them or all of them by doing a lot of other great scientific breakthroughs. Um, yeah, they had other security I, background and other good stuff. I, I knew Matt Green from previous work in end-to-end encryption. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also did some work in like public policy arguments uh, uh, about the fact that backdoors put into encryption systems had repeatedly been exploited by the enemies of the country that put it in, yeah. by enemy countries to spy on the original country's internal government operations, which I thought was a really great and underrated point in the debate. Actually, interestingly enough, I just uh, read on Wikipedia also that you also, I think, commissioned the RAND um, Corporation to study if anonymous coins were disproportionately represented in criminal transactions, and they found that they were not. So it sounds like you're also dabbling in the public policy aspect in there. Yeah, that was really recently. (laughs) So skipping ahead, Zcash is a thing, and uh, my company is about a third of the support network of Zcash as measured by budget. Uh, that is to say, the Zcash network itself hands out money from the issuance of new Zcash coins. And 80% of that money goes to the proof-of-work miners, 7% of it goes to my company, and 13% of it goes to other organizations to support and approve the whole system. Uh, what was my point? Oh, my company was working with Japanese cryptocurrency exchanges, and they need... Um, was David Manaheim involved in that report? Yeah, you uh yeah, you were at Rand earlier and you studied the same thing earlier, but what happened in uh twenty twenty, I think, was uh, Allison, when when was that before come out? And after I graduated. Yeah, after you moved on. Uh but I knew you'd studied that earlier. But what happened was the we're we're trying to get Zcash listed on Japanese cryptocurrency exchanges. And they have a lot of red tape. In Japan, <laughs> uh, but one of the steps was the the financial regulatory body of Japan told us they wanted to see a third party objective report from some credible third party about the use of Zcash among criminals, um, which I thought was really interesting. It's different than in the United States, where the laws or the the uh, official process. It's more about mechanism, like, does this satisfy the rules? Uh, whereas one of the key issues for the Japanese regulators was not about process, it's about who is the user base. I thought that was interesting. But anyway, so they said as part of that process of allowing Japanese exchanges to list Zcash, they wanted to see a report from some credible third party about who are the users. So we commissioned the RAND Corporation post-David, and they have, like, scraper engines that download all the listings from all the illegal drug websites every day um, and then they archive them so they can go back through time and see what was for sale on all the illegal drug sites and they interviewed dozens and dozens like 30 or 40 professors and law enforcement officers and whatever I don't know if they interviewed any drug vendors but uh, they interviewed a whole bunch of people and they wrote this big old report that said we're investigating how these dark net markets do their economics the answer is they mostly use Bitcoin, even though, as previously discussed today, um, sort of the worst possible technology for privacy. Um, 
And specifically with regard to Zcash, they found like basically no evidence. Like there were one or two people who occasionally mentioned Zcash on dark tech market forum discussions, but no real evidence of any actual usage. That means like two years ago, things might have changed. I haven't checked. There was I haven't logged into the Darknet markets recently. Well, uh, there was uh, an, an interesting check comment on that universal Bitcoin adoption would be the best thing for law enforcement ever, uh, in fact. And so um, I think, uh, uh, you know, that would be... Um, I, I kind of disagree in the bigger picture. Like, there's definitely been true so far. Um, there's this weird process by which people conceived of Bitcoin as being freedom from government. And not like specifically in a technological, like think it through logical way, just almost like a cultural way. Like, like we live here, the government doesn't come here. It's just us, uh, which I also remember from the early days of the internet, like John Perry Barlow's Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace and Werner Vinge's novel, True Names, 1983, in which these fun, like free, free, freewheeling hackers like to hang out in virtual reality. Uh, Werner Vinge's True Names was the original fictional representation of virtual reality. And if a government narc tries to sneak in, it's easy to tell because they can't, they're not native there. They're not at home. They look really stiff and they're totally bad at this virtual reality stuff. So it's easy to tell they must be from the FBI. Um, similarly with John Perry Barlow's Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace, it's like, we have the new internet and you don't live here. You don't even know how to visit. Um, and then, you know, that changed, right? And the same thing happened with Bitcoin. Like for a long time, all the Bitcoiners were like, this is great. Bitcoin doesn't even count as money. All the laws that involve financial transactions, they don't apply to us. <laughs> um, that totally hasn't worked out either. And, you know, I think you we started off with you saying, hey, look, Zcash won't really be a niche cryptocurrency because everyone will want to uh, have private transactions for really almost any anything. Uh, like most things really should be private transactions and only a few things may uh, should probably be public. Uh, and so that obviously didn't happen uh, since now. So what, where do you think is this, um, you know, this disconnect coming from? Like, why do you like, you know, is it just that you think that most people think that they, their transactions on public blockchains are actually much more private than they are? Or like, um, or do they just not care? Like, what, what, where do you think is the disconnect there? The echoes of Nick Jabo's social scalability concept, the, the largest population of people probably think that uh, in, in, Western countries probably think that um, their current money and email and everything they do with their lives is good enough and is politically neutral. Only paranoid weirdos or futurists worry to yourself that like, wait, just depending on the next election, is my insurance rate going to change or I need to cut off or whatever? That's like crazy talk. Is that going to change in the wake of uh, Trudeau's actions in Canada? There's some discussion of that. I've seen many people who publicly said, which I really respect, I, I respect little as much as I respect publicly admitting you were wrong, right? Uh, like there's this guy, DHH, he's really influential. He's a good writer and he's a really influential person, Silicon Valley for creating startups and stuff like that. And he wrote this really eloquent blog post like two days ago that just says, I was totally wrong. I thought all this crypto stuff was just a get rich quick scheme. Maybe Venezuelans needed it, but you know, the rest of us, to relevant. And now I've realized like Canada is basically the most peaceful, um, orderly, reasonable culture I've ever met. And now I realize that that is not a secure uh, thing to rely on. And that actually we need 
politically neutral economy everywhere, even in the West, even in the United States. So, so what I'm saying is just the, the largest group of people have just, at least until last week, just thought, whatever, that's like speculative or irrelevant or whatever. And now what we have is a lot of those people changing their minds because of the martial law and the weaponization of the economy against Trudeau's domestic political enemies. Um, it's a huge, huge change. So have you um, seen a big spike in Zcash transactions then, since then? I haven't checked the on-chain transactions. I've definitely seen a huge spike in conversations. And there's there's three layers. It's kind of interesting. So it's the outer world of people who just don't care, don't know. They're basically real comfortable relying on their government and their society for this stuff. And then there's the next layer in of people who are like, oh, wait a minute. I'm not sure that's good enough anymore. Uh, so I'm really glad to see that expanding rapidly because of the Canadian martial law and the weaponization of the economy um, against political opponents. And then the next, somewhere in here, there's a layer of people who immediately turn to Bitcoin because Bitcoin is just like the brand, right? Like uh, for people in the outer rings here, they basically don't know of the existence of anything other than Bitcoin or don't care. They assume it's basically all variants of Bitcoin. Um, and so this is where I'm at as I'm going around telling all these people who newly realized that they do care about politically neutral economic rights. The, the best, uh, the best summary of it that I saw from someone else was freedom to transact is necessary for the exercise of all other constitutional rights. That's a, that's a really good way to express the critical importance of this whole field. So I'm going around to those people who are saying freedom of Judge Act is necessary for the exercise of all other constitutional rights. And we turns out we do care about that. And I'm telling them, hello, Bitcoin does not give you freedom to transact, but Zcash does. So that's that's what I've been doing for the last few days. Wonderful. Thanks. I mean I think we already um now perhaps a few consumers are gradually waking up. What would you think, because even uh, earlier you had also made the argument that, um, you know, there were earlier studies done that, look, maybe even the U.S. government should care about the fact that U.S. citizens at least have the uh, opportunity to transact privately because right. otherwise uh, other potentially hostile nation state actors may also get the better of that information. Do you think that that's a viable argument that some of the U.S. Um, um, government could be more uh, appealed to? Absolutely. And that's why I didn't really agree earlier to someone who said universal use of Bitcoin would be the, the greatest outcome for law enforcement. I don't really think so, because there, we just had this temporary situation where the most active users, but well, I think probably 90 something percent of Bitcoin users were not doing anything illegal all along, but there was this really important 1% or 10% of Bitcoin users who were doing illegal drug deals. Um, so the so the, the standout, unique, differentiating user base happened to be illegal recreational molecules, debtors, and the most active exploiters of the information leak happened to be Western law enforcement. But this is really just an accident of history, right? If um, 
people use things like Bitcoin that pervasively leak information about their users to the whole world, it would be more useful, more advantageous for advertisers, monopolies that want to maintain their position by exploiting information more on a greater scope than their competitors, um, enemy nation state armies who want to surveil and disrupt the economy and the citizens and the political process of enemy nations, things like that. Um, jealous ex lovers that are stalking you like the, 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 the fact that people go to cry like cops versus robbers is understandable because it makes for good headlines. Um, but that's not the most important or the most uh, widespread uses of leaked information in our world. Okay, so we have a few reasons now why consumers and even the uh, governments may um, uh, sh should really care. But then recently, I think one thing that became really interesting is that also there are now a lot of transactions possible through the use of as your knowledge proofs that really weren't possible before. So like lots of like new applications really in crypto commerce have come around because your knowledge are just more effective at allowing you to do uh, certain things that uh, you you wouldn't be able to do. Uh, in any other way. So privacy is almost like a collateral benefit <laughs> that uh, that you get at least from a few of them. Yeah. Uh, that you're excited about or um, that, you know, that has certainly been like, I think a new thing that came along through the efficacy of zero knowledge proofs. Personally, as a failure of imagination here, I think the world has finally caught up to me and I'm getting older. Uh, so I see hard proof of two applications of zero knowledge proofs, which is first of all, private money as in Zcash and is it many other uh, similar things that have come along in Zcash's uh, wake and scalability of blockchains, which is really important. Uh, all of the first generation of blockchains are radically limited in terms of being able to scale up. There's only a few users can use them at a time. Um, and it's a really neat sort of information theoretic connection between privacy and scalability because privacy is about not disclosing information to other people except as desired. And scalability is about not transmitting or processing information unnecessarily because that slows you down and prevents you from scaling. So this really deep concept. So you described how privacy is sort of a collateral product of some of the new um innovations but anyway those are the two things i've seen i'm sure of is private transactions private economic cooperation of all kinds and scalability of these decentralized systems very cool and are there any other um let's say uh cryptography related aspects that are slowly simmering into crypto commerce um i've you know recently just i mean we met at, at east denver just now and there are now a few approaches you know for at least um, you know, doing a homomorphic encryption, uh, potentially uh, connecting that with a blockchain. And I remember when we were at the financial cryptography conference a while back, that was, you know, obviously like a major research track in there. And so it's interesting. Yeah. Actual cryptography sector is like slowly shifting into the crypto commerce or like more Web3 uh, currently. Yeah. So how, how do you see that, you know, future between cryptocurrencies and cryptography converging? Is there you know, some room for maybe having more federated learning um, on, on blockchains and so forth. Like, do, do, you, do, you, do you see there's an interesting intersection? 
Yes, I understand it little. I just at a just at a certain level, it's really pleasing to me to see that the uh, novel economic arrangements are funding science. Right, science was really stuck uh, in a mire. Uh, I, I'm sure those of you who've worked in the science, the military, scientific complex, or whatever you you know what I'm talking about. There's um, in many important areas of science, we've seen almost no progress for like 50 years. It may be oversimplified, but I attribute that to the government funding science. It's like the, how the Soviet Union made tractors. They made terrible tractors uh, in their top-down design. Uh, I think that's how we mostly make science nowadays. And anyway, so I'm, I'm, I'm rambling, but, um, but because of the way that people can make a new token and they can do an ICO or a or they can sell science NFTs or whatever. Um, and Zcash is really the, probably the pioneer of this. Uh, I don't want to overstate the case, but zero knowledge proofs were a really deep scientific breakthrough in 1980. Um, just like public key cryptography was a really deep scientific breakthrough in the 1970s. And then public key cryptography didn't reach mainstream use until the World Wide Web, so you could surf web pages, buy books in the 1990s, so it took about 20 years. Similarly, zero-knowledge proofs, as far as I know, didn't get implemented or applied to any real use for any real humans until Zcash in, in the 2010s. Um, but I think what's happening, and since then, since uh, you know, the last five years, is scientists who are really on the cutting edge of human understanding of stuff conceiving of themselves as being able to actually impact the real world and get rich and all kinds of stuff just because of the cryptocurrency world. And in, I think that's in large part because the cryptocurrency world has managed to evade the intent of United States financial regulators so far. Um, could you maybe, and I just want to have maybe surface a few comments here that were from the chat, which is that another um, use of ZK proofs um, could be stuff like medical data sharing. And uh, yeah. I, I was just actually on a panel judging a longevity hackathon. Um, mm -hmm. Folks wanted to have a way in which through a DAO you could share um, data uh, of different yeah. health profiles um, for with uh, people of similar health profiles. And they like hadn't really, I think, thought like someone like or like at least like deeply about the privacy aspect and there are things you know for example even with homomorphic encryption you could then do federated learning on different types of uh, of medical data potentially but for sure yeah. that you know uh, could be interesting here too and then obviously another yeah. one that david mentioned is um roll-ups for scalability um yeah so you you roll-ups are basically what i was thinking of when i was saying that zk technology is definitely being applied to blockchain scalability For sure. Um, well, you just mentioned that a part of it was that um, perhaps these, um, you know, companies were able to at least forego a little bit of the financial regulation that could be on the horizon. Like, are you worried about specific bids here? Like, how much, you know, do you think, um, yeah, how much do you think uh, that privacy um, preserving coin holders or even the folks building them, um, you know, um, yeah, how much of a, how much of a concern are potential uh, regulatory uh, interference is, is, is good question i've worked we really prioritize this from the get going the zcash project because uh, again we're not going to unlock human flourishing and cooperation exponential takeoff unless it's the mainstream thing that everyone feels 
comfortable using. So we never wanted to be a niche thing. So we always invested really heavily in meeting the letter of the law and planning ahead for future changes and integrating into like the legacy financial system. Like today, oh, I think I saw David Friedman ask, okay, I'm convinced. How do I buy some Zcash? Um, because we've got all this integration into the legacy financial system, Zcash simultaneously, I think it's unique really in the world right now, at least. There's a whole bunch of great competitors coming along, which is really exciting. But uh, at the moment, Zcash is the only thing which has the strongest possible on-chain privacy where if you install a Zcash wallet on your phone in like one minute, you can have end-to-end encrypted, like immutable blockchain-backed money and secret messages. Like there's just no, <laughs> there's, there's, you do not need to seek forgiveness or permission from any third party to do that. Um, at the same time, the same financial asset, the ZEC token is integrated into all of the Western cryptocurrency or almost all the Western cryptocurrency exchanges like Coinbase. And in fact, you can add it into your uh, legacy boomer retirement account through like Charles Schwab or TD Ameritrade or, or whatever. If you, use, if you still use any of that old 20th century stuff, uh, you can add the ZCSH ticker symbol uh, and just get price exposure to Zach right there. Uh, so as a as a blockchain, Zcash is currently unique in the com- combination of those two things. But I didn't get to answer Allison's question. Am I worried about the uh, regulatory changes and particularly with regard to privacy? The answer is I was really worried. And in fact, I previously spoke to the Foresight Institute group about when a crisis it seemed like. And that was during the Trump era. And at the time, there were a lot of signals uh in the wind or whatever private back back channel chatter and whatever that made it seem like the u.s government was going to move and it takes years to do anything because it's such a behemoth but it was going to go ahead and start moving toward suppressing privacy also because at the same time trump's uh, attorney general was also writing white papers uh, saying that we need to suppress in, in encryption, such as in HTTPS and WhatsApp and Signal and so on, right? So that all seemed to be like the way things were going. I was really concerned. Now, since the Biden administration came in, I am much less concerned because they appear determined to force the entire technology and industry outside the United States overseas, which is the same thing that I remember from the 1990s. Well, when uh, the Clinton administration attempted to force the World Wide Web develop uh, overseas so that we wouldn't have any of that nasty, weird stuff inside the United States. So uh, as far as Allison's specific question, I currently don't think there is much concern about the United States regulatory behemoth, deep state, whatever, um, targeting privacy specifically because they are too busy attempting to seize control of or stamp out the entire cutting edge of this technology. Well, 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 that's a very comfortable answer right here. <laughs> exactly the answer. Next one, we have a question here, and uh, which is from Matthias. Uh, yeah, h- hello, ago. So I actually put the question in the chat, um, which is just like sort of in practice, like what's usually the trigger that, that causes people to go from, you know, privacy, you know, okay, you know, this is sort of a thing I don't really care about to, like uh, okay, this is actually something I would I would want to have. Like uh, like, you know, w- w- what sort of events like usually sort of trigger trigger that conversion? Good questions. Um, 
I really think as as Chris brought Chris Hibbert brought up earlier, the events in Canada were absolutely shocking to me because I was married to a Canadian. I lived in Canada for years, uh, and I'm still processing that sort of uh, that authoritarian face behind such a friendly mask. And um, I and like I say, I've seen a lot of other people that are sort of having a solar whiplash moment um, because of those events. Um, so that kind of thing when uh, where people are forced to recognize a mistake in their mental model of the world, I think is motivating. Another thing that's very practical is I've learned that most people, almost everyone doesn't really learn from abstractions and talk, uh, but they really learn from demonstration and hands-on. So whenever I get someone to like look at a blockchain, you know, there's all these block explorers that will show you information about a blockchain. And those are just like the, hold on, I dropped my AirPod. These block explorers are publicly visible and they're just like the real poor man's version of the chain analysis uh, companies. Uh, what the chain analysis companies show to their customers uh, is secret. No one knows. They have to sign an NDA uh, and be like a bank or a government or something if you want to be one of their customers. Uh, but w- what we, we can infer pretty confidently um, that it's very rich. It includes all kinds of metadata about the users and the rest of their footprint on the world, uh, the internet world, as well as their connections and their activities in lots of ways that uh, today's crop of crypto users don't really understand or conceive of. Um, so my point is it needs to be demonstrated and we need to see it. Um, today, I think, or yesterday, a new story came out, uh, which among other things revealed that the Chainalysis company is able to trace transactions that go through Bitcoin mixers. Um, and this is typical of the gap between theory or like my my personal experience and theories and what the rest of the world thinks. Because I always knew mixers would never work. That's why we didn't just improve mixers back in 2015, but we, we went to the zero knowledge proof technique because that's the only one that eliminates information the zero is actually a really important word uh in that name because zero if you if you're leaking much more information than zero information then the attacker is probably going to win because they're much better at using information than you are at covering up your trail you know uh okay i don't think that really answered the question so this big these big political events especially in the west where people you know for better or for worse, probably for worse, but a lot of people just don't care what happens in Venezuela and Belarusia and China and whatever, but they do care what happens in Canada because those folks live close and look like us and talk like us and stuff. Um, and people's personal experience, like sometimes these crypto users get tagged on social media and someone says, oh, look, I see that you have this many dollars in this account and you've been buying this kind of product for the last six months or whatever, and they're shocked. Um, and that's always so obvious to me, but it really changes people's minds when they see it in person. Wow. Okay. Um, and next one up, we have Mark. So um, I want to uh, introduce some distinctions and uh, especially one that I learned from Zuko that I think really helps think about a lot of this, which is uh, something that Zuko said in passing was by privacy, it means that you're, prote- you're 
not revealing the information you don't want to reveal, uh, and that uh, where you still can reveal the information you do want to reveal. So the one of the things that people did see value in with regard to the public unforgeable ledger is the integrity, the, the, the unforgeable transparency. And one of the concepts that Zcash brings, in addition to the privacy, and really quite fundamental is the selective transparency, is the ability to reveal information to select other parties by choice, but still have the authenticity of the revealed information be backed by the integrity of the blockchain as a whole. Uh, Excellent. And that's, and that's that's really important, and it's fundamental to using these technologies uh, to enable cooperation. And I think it was fundamental to yeah. why Zuko was able to convince regulators to be more friendly than not towards the kind of progress that Zcash brings, because the ability to transact with integrity to selected observers uh, right. solves a lot of the problems that, that regulators claim to care about. Exactly. Well put. Uh, can I respond to that? This is definitely something I've learned over the years. There's a really big cultural effect where a lot of people are are, are, are unmotivated or they think, oh, you're, you're, you're being weird. I don't know. need to go there. And what they're thinking is they don't have a lot of secrets. They're not particularly more closed than others may know, right? And so just recently, like a couple of weeks ago, I realized there's a, a really nice like slogan I can use to get through to these people where it's not about minimizing sharing. It's about choosing sharing. It's, it's about consent. That should be important to everyone. I like that uh, a comment that was made here in the chat. And lack of privacy is information pollution as well. And so that uh, also uh, fits in. Um, yeah, there's a negative externality. That's one of the compl complexities about it. Like there, for a long time, there were these stories I used to read. Also in academia, like, you know, uh, sociological research papers or whatever. And the thrust, the moral of the story was people say they care about privacy, but they don't actually because they won't actually delete their Facebook or pay to avoid disclosure or whatever. And so for a long time, I was kind of convinced like, oh, that's too bad that no one cares about privacy. They really should. Um, but then later I became skeptical of all those stories. I kind of think that like Facebook and Google were sort of paying to support that narrative. Um, and in fact, people do care about privacy, but one of the, so one of the subtleties is we're not talking minimization. We're talking consent. Wonderful. Um, we have one more uh, participant questions, and then I'd like to close out with two very action-oriented questions. And one is from okay. also Farsight Fellow. Hello. Uh, so I wanted to ask, um, how how critical do you think it is that we kind of uh, in increase the number of programmers who understand cryptography as their internals as opposed to black box abstractions? I consider myself one of the people who lives in the world of mostly using cryptography as black box abstractions. And the second part is, for anybody who is interested in increasing their knowledge, what paths do you recommend for them to uh, begin that path? You got me this time. I'm definitely going to uh, shill your technology and Agoric and Oxcap, um in response to that question. So I, I do think it's a lot more important to have people who, re who build things with black box abstractions. Um, those are 
like clearly most of the value that comes out of anything is that other 90% of what gets built on top of some novel advance. Um, um, even though speaking as one who's made contributions so far, Zcash is a novel advance. But yeah, reuse and bringing it to more users and giving them new things they can do with it and all that, all that should be done black box instead of with uh, novel cryptography. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know. I don't have direct experience, but uh, based on my prior experiences, I would say uh, the Objcaf paradigm that Mark and Christine here are leaders of is the best way to get started for a programmer. Wonderful. Um, if you want to check out uh, either uh, an algorithmic presentation or a presentation from Christine, um, then uh, you can do so in the Foresight Seminar Summaries. Um, and so we have a few presentations there. Or obviously, just go straight to their websites. But um, I... Okay, so there's actually another one that I can't, I think, get around of not asking, which is a question from the chat. With the US hating privacy so much, are there any countries on your radar that seem to be fighting for privacy and not get, uh, giving ground? I think... No, they're all terrible, as far as I can think. Um, but they're not that terrible. The best thing is rule of law, right? The best thing is places where you can sue. Um, that's one of the details about the Canadian disaster that upset me the most was that the government, in the, in the same stroke as they announced they were instituting martial law, is suspending the Constitution and weaponizing the economy and canceling all of the uh, protesters' insurance, which threatens like impoverishing them for life. Because uh, they rely on that. Uh, at the same stroke, they also said it, and we're giving blanket immunity to all the banks that you can't sue your bank if they ruin your life in compliance with this move. I thought that was really interesting. It's kind of like just like nationalization of the banking system. Um, so my answer is, actually, the U.S. is probably among the best because we have some vestiges of the First Amendment still in effect. And we have pretty reasonable rule of law where you can sue if someone goes outside the rules against you. Thanks for this answer. So now um, the question that we always uh, close this podcast with uh, out with, uh, which is one that's a little bit more practical. So when we met uh, at East Denver, you uh, sent me some uh, Zcash through a oh, uh, yeah. guide and you sent that with a little note. Uh, so that was kind of nice. And so we always try to close out with something that is a little more actionable, like what could people do? Like what's a bit of a challenge that we could maybe put a bounty on um, that people uh, here could do afterwards, after this call right away uh, to just, uh, you know, dabble uh, by increasing with increasing their own privacy uh, in a fun way. Okay. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm shooting from the hip here, but the bounty should be that you send a love heart emoji through your Zcash wallet. To a certain address. Anyone who does that, you're a winner. You're part of part of Team Freedom. It's very nice. Emojis do come through. So uh, it's a cute way of sending private messages. And I think um, maybe you can share in an anonymous way. Uh, isn't that also something that has happened already in the Zcash blockchain? Like have people gotten sent little no love notes or marriage notes? or? Oh, yeah. I know of four different couples that have exchanged vows of love through the Zcash blockchain. And it's all encrypted, so I haven't seen it except for if I was one of the couples, but if I was part of one of the couples. But um, it's like carving your initials in a love heart on a tree, but anyone else who walks by just sees the tree, only the lovers can see the initials. I, I, two of those couples told me and showed me photographs after the fact, 
of where they used encrypted permanent immutable love notes in the Zcash blockchain as part of their wedding ceremony with their family and friends. It's two, two different couples. Oh, very wonderful. I mean, we could already close it here out on this practical bit, but one final question, and it's fine if you don't have a perfect answer to this. Could you maybe foreshadow uh, a world in like 10 years or something, one quickly in where we get around to um, fixing the privacy holes that we still have in place um, or actually like, you know, rebuilding part of the stack and then uh, the other one um, in uh, a world in, in which we didn't. Uh, so like a more dystopian utopian scenario so people can extrapolate a little bit outward where we may, where may we go from here? Why are immediate actions actually quite relevant? Let me do the bad one first, okay? Uh, I see the dystopian scenario as nations, large nation states that are competing with one another thinking of control over their citizens as like a resource or a weapon or armor or something. So they go further and further in controlling their own residents while warring with one another. That's the dystopian scenario. So every country becomes the fantasy that like Stalin and Mao wanted but couldn't implement and all of the big countries become that while trying to defeat one another Ugh. okay can we like wash our mouths out with something nice and move on so in the utopian scenario which I actually feel more I don't know it just seems right <laughs> I generally think of the utopian scenario in that one what we have is exponential human flourishing so what I think of is like wealth and safety and creativity and creation and diversity. Uh, just, just, I don't know, 10 years, maybe 20, because exponential takeoffs can be kind of slow for the first 10 years, right? Um, but everyone has the ability to provide for themselves and to take care of themselves by giving to others something that others need um, and that being sufficient their life you know what i'm saying like jobs i'm talking jobs everyone needs jobs or some other way to have safety because there's a qualitative difference between being within sight of destitution and being out of sight like it's over the horizon you're you're, you're not worried you don't need to think about going there right so the the main thing I think that unlocks human flourishing and creativity and exponential takeoff is moving the poverty line away from the vast majority of people until it's no longer a factor. And then they have the safety to create and contribute and grow for themselves and others. That's exponential. Wonderful. Well, there is no better way, I think, to close out this session with. Thank you all for staying six minutes over. I think it was deeply worth it. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much, y'all. It was wonderful to see all of you and I can't wait to see you at our next meeting. Bye, everyone. Thanks for staying on. Also, I will share a link to our Discord in the chat for those of Ooh. you who want to. There's a, there's a bounty. You got to send a love heart emoji through the blog. Yeah, there is a bounty. There is a Discord and I'm hoping that I'll see many of you there. We are usually in the Intelligent Corporation channel. And so here we go. Uh, I'll be hanging out on Discord. So see some of you there and see many of you hopefully in the next few weeks. Bye-bye, everyone.